how he spent 13 years in private equity and grew businesses from $18 million to $200 million. So you spend the last uh, 14 plus years now working in private equity and you know it's been a it's been a great adventure grew some really interesting companies to some really incredible skills things i never thought i'd do you know uh before that and it's been a great experience and now what i do is essentially run a growth consultancy where i help businesses who are pre-private equity pre-vc essentially position themselves to make themselves like super attractive to be either be acquired by private equity and vcs or you know to essentially get their money in to grow faster so that's pretty much what we do now awesome how do you make people position themselves better or companies how do you shift their positioning so it's really quite simple private equity or any kind of investor they have a certain set of things they want and all you need to do is to identify which are the kind of investors that would really make sense for you and then essentially toggle your business do a couple adjustments to then make it a no-brainer right so if you if for example you are a you know you're already making 10 million dollars ar in a revenue and you're two million dollars in profit but now you need some money to scale right so you wouldn't go to a vc for that right why would you you'd go to more stable private equity houses or more high net worth so looking for decent return they can understand the business pretty intuitive they'll give you capital they're very patient and off you go. So it's, it's essentially finding, it's pretty much similar to sales. It's like finding the right product for the right people and then magic happens. Awesome. You mentioned you gotta have what investors want. What do investors want? So in the simplest form, returns. Investors want returns, but one small caveat to that. They want risk adjusted returns. So for the risk they're willing to put in, they want their commensurate returns for that risk. So for example, you get a VC who's taking a lot of risk, you know, so essentially because most VC, the outcomes are, you know, the moon or bust. So the moon has to be the outcome, right? They need, you know, a 2X on a VC deal is just not good enough. I want five, six, seven, 10, 100X if possible. But, you know, a 2X, 3Xer doesn't make sense. But for a private equity investor, right? Business, business is generally cash flow positive. Everything's largely predictable. Markets relatively stable. So I'm okay with 3X because I know the risk I'm taking is not as high. So again, right, find the right investors for the sweet spot you're trying to target. Cool, man. We, when we first got our call in uh, tweets and clients, we, that was one of the most enjoyable Zoom calls I've had. Cause you told me so many stories about like crazy businesses. And then I was like, Nev, you should do like bizarre business stories with Nev, like make a series of it. And one of them, if you'd like to share is uh, one related to Wagyu, right? So like in, in our world, I'm so used to like SaaS and agencies and cold email and Twitter and outreach. And we're like, no dude, I'm gonna make a shit ton of cash with Wagyu meat. So you wanna tell that story? Absolutely, buddy. So. So a little bit of backstory. So what people know as Wagyu in the, in the, in the broader sense of the world is you're not getting 100% Wagyu. You're getting, you know, at best 50-50. You're getting half Wagyu and half some, you know, normal, normal cow, like an Angus cow, for example. Don't get me wrong. They're great. But when you taste 100% full-blood Wagyu, it's a whole different experience. And the closest I think I've, I, I told you is like, 
tasting velvet with you know a little hint of hazelnut on top of it it's it's a truly unique experience so so what we did was so we understood that you know obviously full blood wagyu supremely unique product highly defensible because it's very difficult to find full blood wagyu because it's they have to come from japan and the lineage has to be largely untouched whereas you know for most other countries they've already mixed it so once you've mixed it you can't get it back to 100%. So we knew there's a you know a fairly good defensibility to it, but the problem is there're not many of those cows around. So how do you scale something like that? So we bumped into a founder who came up with a strategy that we thought was incredibly unique to, to scale this. So really intuitively quite simple. You take a a full-blood wagyu embryo, implant it with a full-blood wagyu semen but you implant it into a normal cow because the genetics are the, the genetics of the genetics right full blood wagyu full blood wagyu but essentially you implant it into a uh an angus cow so a lower cost cow as just the oven and the good thing is because your two other animals are essentially not being you know not like not being used at the moment then you can take more embryos you can take more semen and essentially scale that way so that's how you scale a operation that most would think oh no you just have to go through a natural cycle that's how you scale well essentially that's how you scale life so yeah that's 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 one of the most interesting deals i've worked on for sure how do you react when you first saw that business and you're like yeah we're going to we're going to create life but not the way Man. you think we're going to create life oh buddy i i can't i honestly okay so i'll just tell you exactly what happened right as i saw this read through it when i finished reading the, the the deal memo and all that it was 11 p.m. at night i spent so from 11 p.m. at night right the next thing i know i was waking up from my desk at at the office by the way at the office at 7 a.m. cuz i spent the rest of the night modeling looking at the numbers thinking this could not possibly be real like this you, you, come on what are we doing here like come on and lo and behold man like it it's 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 real so that was like a way to scale a premium product that wasn't that scalable before right correct so wouldn't that be an issue because now you're making the supply bigger and then it's like people can get out catch up to it and lower the price yeah so the issue that a situation like that happens is like you're you're essentially introducing a premium product to the market so there will be a hit to the price but the way we've modeled it is that even if there was a meaningful decline in price which there will be we're still much more expensive than so is there still a premium price than everything else and because now people have access to it you make up for that in volume right so now people are like you know you got countries like Saudi Arabia who can't get enough of this stuff they just can't there's just such a high demand for super uber premium products like this they just can't get their hands on it so now we're essentially saying what if we could get you consistent consistent volume over man time i mean imagine all the six star restaurants in Saudi Arabia now going oh my god we'll take everything you you have China and and you know you just name the places right when you have when you have an uber premium product that is at an accessible price you know you can make up for the lost in price by just running a whole bunch of volume through it there's six star restaurants third cap that's right 
There's so six that- star restaurants. Oh yes, in 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 uh, I think in Abu Dhabi in Dubai, like yes, there's six. Oh God, what's it like going to one of those? I have not been to one, buddy, because unfortunately, when all that started to happen, COVID happened, so I could not actually go there. But I can imagine. Oh, it's, I know. It, I imagine go. it would be. You gotta go now. I, mean, I, I do. I do. Fire! Like, come on. <laughs> soon, 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 man. Go, soon. soon. Like, even Pablo Escobar went uh, went to America, you know, a few times, but it did. <laughs> Cool. Um, so what percentage would you say of your businesses are like bizarre businesses like that and normal? I would say majority, major, um, I would say probably like a 70-30 split, like by numbers, by, by numbers. Because, mo- I mean, again, there's a lot of, a lot of value in boring businesses. And, and to be honest, I love boring businesses give me a waste management business over a SaaS company any day seriously give me a waste management business give me a you know like a daycare center roll up any day over a SaaS business because they're predictable they're scalable your cash flow you know the cash flow positive highly predictable you know they're great and and, and it's so in demand i mean I, I don't know if you ever run or you know, you've ever seen what parents would be willing to do for their kids, but trust me, they're willing to play a lot of money to make sure the kids are well taken care of. So it's, you know, daycare businesses are fantastic. Those are one of our best performers. Though. They're great. What makes you like the boring businesses over the exciting one? Because I have a SaaS, you know, and we're going to talk about that later on, but uh, absolutely. what makes you prefer absolutely. those? Yeah. yeah. So boring businesses are highly execution driven. So you get good because of how well you execute, right? Like, so, and, and, and the good thing about execution driven businesses is that you get better over time. You get better at execution over time. And, and there's a network effect once you get to a certain size. So you get benefits. It's harder for people to penetrate. For example, right? If you have, if you're essentially run the market on daycare businesses in your area, a new person opening a new school is not going to be able to make a whole dent in, in your market. So you get to protect your, that's a lot better. And, you know, just for example, this really upstart business, it's really starting to make some waves. What do you do? You just buy them. You got the capital. Like, all right. Oh my God, this guy's got a really great concept. You know what? I'll just buy them. Why fight? You know, I'll just buy them. So yeah. So that's boring businesses like that. Like defensible businesses really are very attractive. Don't be wrong. SaaS is great too. Um, just a different risk profile and a little bit more of an unpredictable risk profile. That's all. Yeah, I get it. I have a friend. What he does is he helped kind of, um, when there's hail, his company yes. takes care of like fixing, you know, the broken windows and the roofs. And once there was hail in Texas and Texans don't, don't get hail. Right. So the guy's just like, yeah, we're, we're, we're cold calling the hell out of Texas. Right. And he made a, a killing. Oh, see, that's great. Right. Cause again, very, very real problem, right? High impact and very few alternatives, especially in Texas, right? So that, again, genius play, like genius play. And again, doesn't matter how big businesses get, these fundamental traits just matter. Like they're just always there. Like how big is, how painful is the problem? You know, how big the market is and what are the alternatives? That's it. Yeah, I want to get into that. One of your best threats, it's actually, and let me quote you. And best threats in terms of performance. I think everything you read is great there, by the way. I love you. But Thank one you. of your best <laughs> threats in terms of performance is 
uh, let me find this. How do I identify a real market and a real problem worth solving? So those are words that people throw around freely, but you can't just do that at the levels like these people are looking at. So how do you actually identify a real problem worth solving in a good market? Yeah. So very, so the, the first thing you need to identify is, is there a pain is, and that's a very yes or no question. Like, is this a more a like need, you know, is this a nice to have, or is this a pain? So I generally like to play in spaces with pain, like real pain. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying the nice, you know, the, the Louis Vuittons of the world aren't great. Like they're great. I I'm just a more pain centric individual. So then what are people willing to get rid of pain? And I want that to be really high. Like, you know, for example, the endometriosis uh, business we're looking at right now, people are willing to pay a lot of money to have that problem go away. And again, the hail example from Texas, people want to pay a lot, like we're paying a fair amount of money to get that problem go away. So pain, the pain is real that, that we know, and you can quantify that many ways, right? One of them is, you know, how much time save, how much dollar generated, you can do all those things to generate that. And then the most important thing, what are the alternatives? That's the most important thing that people always ignore about quality market. If the if your solution isn't, in my view, the threshold should be between seven and 10 times better, then you're just the same, same. Because consumers can't see differences, like, you know, 2X, 3X difference between two competitors, very hard, very difficult to see the real meaningful difference. But when you're 10x different, they can tell. Then you can start taking market share. So that's how I would identify. Is this what you saw? And I don't know if it was breast milk or period girl, but any of those two? Both. Um, so so with with um, endometriosis, um, okay, sorry, which one? Which, yeah, so endometriosis, um, just for, you, for your listeners who don't know, is a really painful condition that affects about one in 10 women age 25 to 40. And the problem with endometriosis is to get diagnosed, you need surgery, like, you know, some, some semblance of surgery, which as you can imagine is painful, scary, and annoying. So that's the current problem. We know it's painful and we know people want, we, they, they need to know that they have endometriosis. So they're willing to pay to get diagnosed. But the current option is surgery which is annoying, but if you have to get it, you have to get it. The alternative solution that this founder is proposing is instead of going for surgery, give us some of your blood. We'll test it and we'll let you know. So suddenly it just goes, yeah, that's a no brainer. Cause clearly, you know, if, if, if everything works off you go, like you're done, like, you know, so there, so that's, that's pretty much how, how that all kind of pans out and the endometriotic and endometriosis that solution was you know probably one of the biggest like easy market kind of fits that we've ever seen love it man that's cool when we had our call i told you like dude like yeah do, do you only invest in like <laughs> like dystopian businesses like like just these extreme cases um do you like, i, dude, I, I honestly businesses. They're, they they are man, and to be honest, we we're we're seeing a fair share of them, like you know, businesses that really change like change lives. Like so, for example, one of the businesses we're looking at is a solution for polycystic ovary syndrome. Now, just for your listeners, in the extreme cases of polycystic ovary syndrome, 
is you could be having your period for as long as two years, largely un uninterrupted, or worse, not having a period for two years. So, you know, if you're a woman within the age of 25 to 40 and you're looking to have kids and have start a family, this becomes a real problem. And, and by the way, there are a whole bunch of other side effects that comes with this condition that is quite, quite horrific. Once I discovered it, I didn't even know of its existence. And when I found out women were living with these things, it was just, it was just crazy, right? And then I've, I bumped into a founder and she's developed a solution that, okay, do the things I'm telling you to do. So it's a both it's both a nutritional and a training protocol that you have to follow. You do those two things, six months, your your condition just disappears, right? You, you Your symptoms go away. Like imagine your life having suffered through all this, six months, done, you know? So that's that's an example of one of those businesses that I thought was, you know, totally a no-brainer. Um, endometriosis is, is another one. It was just totally a no-brainer. Like, imagine the, the impact on women's lives. So, yeah, man, like, we're getting a fair few of them coming through. You know, even even, even one that's kind of simple that we thought was truly phenomenal and it was just, it made no sense that no one was doing this. So, you know, in the fitness space, right, there's like seven different versions of boxing. You know, there's seven different franchises doing a boxing thing. But yeah. how many franchises do you know help um, women who were pre and postnatal? So pregnant women, women who just gave birth and women who were pregnant that run training for them. Like, so teaching pre and postnatal women how to box? No, how, how to work out, how to work out, how to get. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I, know what you, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, to know sorry, how to box. I don't know in that in that case, right? But yeah, anyway, no, absolutely. I'll, I'll no, no, yeah, 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 no, absolutely, yes. Uh, so yeah, so essentially, it's a training, uh, you know, a training fr franchise, essentially helping women who are you know pregnant and who are postnatal, right? And imagine if you're a woman who's just pregnant, you're you've been working out your entire life, but now you don't know what's going to put your baby at risk or not. But then you come to a place where someone walks you through systematically through that process. And then when you've given birth and you can imagine this, the craziness that involves having a kid that young, what if you go, go to a place for an hour, an hour and a bit, you train, you get trained properly and your child's being taken care of. Like there's, we have, we have facilities where the kid goes there and is being taken care of by professionals while you get to work out, mingle with other moms, you know, enjoy some you know adult time imagine what that does for postpartum depression mental health and all that kind of stuff yet no one's doing that like it's just like oh you know and if and if they have the best branding at least in my opinion guess what the business is called what bump oh nice okay nice yeah i like it yeah yeah like yeah so yeah, so that business is doing really well, man. Started off, so when we joined, it kind of like had two, two, two franchises, and now it, you know, it's already sold two franchises, and we're, I, I would expect like ten franchises next year at the very least. And this thing is that, doing gangbusters. That's like right up there with, yeah. Like imagine a cigarette that brands itself as a cigarette that pregnant women can smoke that don't harm the baby. You know, that's like right up there. That's incredible. You know, I, just, I was just thinking about it right now. Yeah, maybe you'll yeah, find no, one really well. Yeah, which uh, maybe you know, my next you know, question, you... man. Like, like, dude, you get 
crazy access to crazy deals. And you mentioned we a lot. So can you explain a little bit about who is we and how do you guys get access to such crazy deal flow? Not in terms so much in quantity, I'm sure you get plenty, but also in like quality of deals. How do you get access to all this? So one is from my networks in private equity, 13 years, you make a lot of friends and, and, and they know what you're interested in. So that becomes a, my own private network. And then I have a bunch of people I really work closely with, both co-founders and in other capacities. So for example, you know, one of my closest co-founders is um, Jacinta McDonald. And what she's done is she's essentially, I don't know if you guys, I mean, you have it in, in, in the States, um, Anytime Fitness, right? You guys have Anytime Fitness, every corner of the States, right? You're talking to and a non-American. What, oh yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah. So, but but the, what what my, my founder did was she actually bought Anytime Fitness to Australia. So, oh, nice. so yeah, so there's that. And another one of my other co-founders is uh, she, um, so you remember Zumba was back, was big back in the day. Oh yeah. 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 So, so another one of my founders, she brought Zumba to Australia. So, so immediately you have these networks of people. Cause again, when you're playing in that space, you, you, you connect with, with a caliber of people who are just deal making all the time they're having they're seeing opportunities and not necessarily all in the fitness space they just done stuff in life and they get access to it and everybody just co-mingles and tries to find the right fit so yeah that's how you kind of get access to it do you see a lot of deals go that way as in people taking an already proven concept bringing it to another land just straight up copying it i don't know if straight up copying it but modeling it and making a ton of money does that happen often a lot more than people think a lot more than people think. And, and, you know, if I have, if, if I was inclined to do it and I could really have the, you know, for lack of a better term, the fucks to do, there's so many concepts that have worked in the U S that I would just copy and bring it to Australia and you'd make a mint doing that. Like what? Like seriously. Okay. Um, one of them oh, would I be got you one from, from Guatemala. Did you bring this little shits? The what, Zin pouches is the Zin. You don't know what this is. This is a Zin pouch. It's a nicotine no. pouch. All oh, right. No. Yeah, it's, it's nic yeah. So we don't have those in Guatemala, right? And you know, Latinos are pretty much our breakfast is cigarette and Coca Cola. You know, so like this would kill. <laughs> like this would be awesome. But uh, I'll, I'll let you continue. What, what examples but, are but, there but, in Australia? Okay, so one of the one of the biggest things that's happening in the U.S. and starting to see trends in the U.K. is co-working spaces, like really, but but not just general co-working spaces, like um, industry specific. So, for example, hairdressers, right? Like like head. I, I don't know if you know, but in the U.S., they're massive. Co hairdressing co co-working spaces are massive, right? Private equity has dropped so much money in that space because essentially what you do is it's a simple play, right? You think about it this way. You have X amount of money, just say 2 million bucks. You go renovate a nice spot in a shopping mall, you know, fill it up with 30 seats, equip it with all the hairdressing equipment. And all you got to do is fill those spots, right? Suddenly all you have to do is have one manager managing the 30 people and they just got to pay their dues, how they run the operations, how they run the operations. All you do is just collect funding. And just do that a couple of times and suddenly you have a collection of some really, really attractive assets there. See, this is why I had to bring you in, man. Like a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, I started a cold email agency. 
We're like, no, fuck it. Let's start care dressing co-working spaces, yo. That's that's where hey, the money is. It, it, it That's the best. So the best thing for people to think, if they run an agency, after a certain point, you need to start leveraging. You need to start leveraging that cap, the, the cash flow you're getting. That cash flow has to go to work. And these kind of ideas is where you get them to work. How? So, for example, if you're if you're a, uh, a start like you know, just say you're uh, you know one of those agencies, right? Year four, year five, you're churning you know four or five hundred grand, hypothetically, right? So, you know, you should be running those profits into new endeavors like this. You know, for example, like this this let's hypo- again let's running a hypothetical, right? Like just say you know there's five hundred grand that in profit for your businesses this year to do this you know to do the hair stylist co working space. You know, you need like two mil, like two mil down, for example. Take half of it, you know, half a million debt. All right. Sorry, a million debt, 400K for you. Another another investor brings in 600K. You offer to operate it. There you go. 400K is working for you without working for you. I like it. One last podcast I asked you, what were some like differences in how people at like zero to one mil spend their money? one to five mil spend their money, five to 10 and 10 above. And you were like, at some point, everybody just goes into real estate. They just dump it in, in properties. Why do they do that? So the so property plays are very defensive by nature for, for the most part. Again, there's a lot of caveats to that statement. But again, for a lot of the the people I know that make the most money, it's it's a, it's a very safe bet to park a large amount of cash because sometimes for example right if you if you're trying to play in vc land you're deploying three four hundred buck uh, three or four hundred thousand dollars per transaction that's a lot of volume to get through when you got like 40 million dollars to go through like when you're trying to you know trying to get a return on 40 million bucks trying to write four hundred thousand dollar checks starts getting really tedious and you got to manage that right you can't just like write it off and forget about it so you have to manage that whereas if you're dropping you know 10 mil on three commercial deals makes a lot more sense, especially if there's an operator there running it for you and you can literally just have that churn for you. Fuck. Dude, yeah. I want to talk about that a lot because you drop Which, these terms like they're nothing, you know? It's like, oh, 400,000, like, oh, 40 bill, right? And you, you're friends uh, with, with some billionaires. So sure. I, I'd love to know, what are some things you learned from them? Okay. So I thought about this and and two of the biggest lessons I've learned from two separate billionaires. Um, so the first one, um, he's probably the one with the commercial, the commercial acumen. And he, I sat down with him. We were on this farm and just the coolest, most chill dude. Like I still remember when I first met him, he come, obviously billionaires generally travel with an entourage. Um, I couldn't pick who he was. And then when I found out he was the most, he was shorts and t-shirt, when everyone around him was in the suit, that's how I kind of guessed. Cause I guess, you know, that's the only way, I mean, the, the, if you're, if you're the, if you're part of the entourage, you can't be the worst dressed person. So it, it was this guy anyway. So the one thing he taught me that really has resonated with me today is get leverage, not debt, but leverage. So the power of a billionaire is not so much that they have a billion dollars. It's true. But if you think about it this way, if I took Warren Buffett's billion dollars, oh, so the many, many billion dollars he has today, he'd be able to make a sizable amount back by the end of the week. 
And it's because of the leverage he has, with the connection he has, the knowledge he has, and the ability to influence outcomes. That's where the real value is. So like this, this billionaire friend of mine, where before he even looks at a deal, the amount of work that's already gone into that transaction is so high that he literally comes in, spends 30 minutes, makes a decision, and it's done, right? You're talking about a 20, 10, 20 $30 million transaction that he spends 30 minutes on that has that kind of impact. So it's like the input is phenomenally disproportional to the output. And that's what he taught me. It's like what you should spend your time on is not so much making money. It's just building leverage, right? Leverage can come from your networks. It can come from money. It can come from, like, you know, it can come from many places, right? But that's what you should focus on. Not just money, just your leverage. So I've never forgot that, that, that piece of advice ever. Oh, that's awesome. That was, that was so good. How, how have you used that advice in your life? So that one, Twitter is the start of that. Like me, me and getting using Twitter was definitely a start of that. But for me, I've used money as my main lever. If we're being honest, that's been my main lever. Money and my smaller universal context have been my main levers. So I, I get access to things because I'm willing to invest more than, you know, not more, but, you know, to, to a range that people are willing to accept. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've built networks for, with people who know and trust the way I operate and that they're like, okay, cool. Like he's a good person. Like he's a good person to bring in. And when I am brought into a business, it's rarely just purely on funding. It's also from expertise. So I get access to things, not just because I have the capitals, because I have insight that the founders are lacking. So that's generally how I get it. That's how I leverage my positioning. The knowledge, right. knowledge, money, and networks. And the second piece of advice, I, I thought you'd love this one. So billionaire fund manager, right? Um, likes in cash. Likes yeah, in yeah. Cash. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's, and she's, and you know, she's such, she's a G dude. Like she's, you know, I, like she's my spirit animal. I, I I can't say her name, but you know, like she's my spirit animal. She's a fund manager in China, and she she makes a lot of consumer based deals. Like so, in, in a space that I'm not inherently comfortable with. Like, but so do you know how what she's willing to do to go and assess the quality of the products of the business? She does door to door knocking and speaks to customers about the products. Oh, like God. she goes door to door to some customers. And I still remember this one time, apparently she was um, talking to a business that sells like um, cosmetic products. And she's asking a very specific question. Like, do you put it in your, in your bathroom or is it in like some cupboard somewhere in your, in your house? Like, you know, so essentially is it a front of mind thing or is it like somewhere in the back? And then the customer said, no, 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 it's a front of mind thing. It's literally on my kitchen cabinet. That's what she does. Can I go see it? So she literally walks into this person's house to go check that it's it's on the it's it's there. So the so the two things, yeah, exactly. Just just because she wanted to be certain, because she's dropping a lot of money here, and she wants to, she already understands the customers, she already knows how everything works, but she really believes in like this ground level talk to the customer, get get the feeling, the get the on the ground feeling, and that taught me. Doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, the fundamentals of running a good business are still the fundamentals of running a good business. And no matter how big you get, you shouldn't forget that, you know, there's nothing above you, billionaire or not, nothing above you. Fuck yeah, dude. 
it reminds me of like by the way you got your purple belt yesterday wasn't it in jiu-jitsu so yes it was yes it was that's, Thank that's you. some good Thank shit it, it reminds me of um of roger gracie as in he was called like the famous what was it like the white belt jiu-jitsu like he's the best of all time right but if people call it stuff like the white belt jiu-jitsu because if you were to train for like two or three months you don't you can recognize the technique the best thing ever does but he does it just at a certain nuance a certain like sophistication that is just completely different so that re it, when you said the fundamentals it reminded me of that of how the fundamentals are the fundamentals whether you're at the top or at the bottom it's still the same 100 and to be honest the most successful businesses i've ever invested in never neglected the fundamentals always paid attention to things as things as basic as cash management getting the right people on the ground you know making sure market forces at play talking to your customers like these guys are fanatic the businesses which i know who did well were fanatical with stuff like this you know they just they never they never were willing to cut corners on the fundamentals they were willing to forego like fancy stuff to make sure the fundamentals were solid and again Hodge gracie is a great example because you you know exactly yeah. what he's doing by three months in but for you to be able to execute like him, <laughs> yeah, good luck. It's like, no, yeah, that won't happen. Uh, yeah. Um, that's why sometimes the tweeting clients are testimonials. This is actually an issue. They're so boring. Like, they're so boring. It's like, what did you do? Oh, I just, I just did what's in this page. I'm like, okay, what, what else? Right? Like for you, right? You're like, what do you do? Oh, I just did a sales call. I watched some, yeah. some tape, I corrected yeah. it, and then I did it again. Like, yeah. There you go. It, it's made, again, even at, it just, it's always the fundamentals. It's just always the fundamental. People try and make this thing to something fancy. It's just the fundamentals done over an aggressively long period of time. I like it. One, another one of your, of your top performing threads, I have it right here is um, like you analyze like traits of the best founders. Yeah. And we covered this in the last podcast and I'd love to talk about what are the best traits you see in the top, top founders? Like what sets them up different? So the first one is self-awareness. So the, so founders have, you know, they've got a lot to deal with and there's so many moving parts and a lot of the things you're doing is new. You know, whether you like it or not, you know, when you're talking to a VC and you're dealing with the VC, it's very time, it's always a first time experience. And founders who are very self-aware adapt better. So they're just paying attention, understanding where they're weak, they're, they have the ego in check, and then they just, they're willing to just realize, okay, cool, I need help here. I'm going to go get help here. I have this deficiency here. I'm going to get that fixed up. So, you know, the the most successful founders I've seen are the ones that are really quite high in self-awareness. And then the other, the other really important trait that I think every founder should always aspire to is just like hardcore, relentless execution. You know, like you, you, I, I don't like you, I want you to have a default for just default aggressive. Okay. Like if there's something worth testing, let's go test it until we get an answer. There's no such thing as in limbo, you know? 
It's either done or not done. Yeah. It's either figured, you know, you run run it to the nth degree. It's always default aggressive, for sure. Yeah, like in jiu-jitsu, they teach you like offense is the best defense, right? Even if 100%. you're in a bad position, you should be looking at what options do you have to escape. Correct, because you sh- if you're all if all you're fo- focusing is on the defending, you're just gonna burn out. Like just 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 life. You should always be moving. Like you know, you're all again default aggressive. You can be default aggressive when you're being defensive. So default aggressive. How did how did you come up with those two being some of the two best or most important traits and founders? Ah, uh, I honestly just meeting a lot of them and seeing why the ones who were successful were just. And the funny thing is, a lot of the ones that I thought were successful, I knew before they were successful. Like when you when you you know when you meet them and you you listen to how they built the businesses thus far, like you kind of I was trying to figure out like how I kind of knew they were successful, and it was these main traits. They were very very self aware, and I generally give feedback quite early into our kind of engagement with whoever we work with, and it's very interesting to see how people receive that. And you know, some people get really defensive immediately. You know, regardless of what I say. And then the ones who are just quite open and ask questions, like they don't just take my word for something, but they'll ask really deep questions and they'll start pondering and probing. Those are the ones that tell me like, all right, the self-awareness indicator is generally higher than, you know, than the ego-driven, you know, crazy, ah, no, must my way or the highway guy. Yeah. So that's, that's when you, especially when someone does the my way or the highway, you know, like, yeah, you're probably going to have a problem. Is that do, do this, these founders come from wealthy families or middle class or poor families? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, a lot. So, sorry, let me answer your question in tears. One a, across the board, a lot. You know, a lot of them. I've, I've seen versions of all of that. I do find that founders from families, oh, they don't come from money. A lot more open. They're a lot more open, and sometimes, to, in in my experience, you may be a, suffering from a bit severe case of imposter syndrome. But they're very open, and they're very willing to make the changes. Um, so, founders with money sometimes a bit hard. Oh, that's interesting. Alex Formosi said that one of the traits of the top top performers they have like this deep sense of insecurity, and they make up for it with wild success. Now, I know like. I was super insecure growing up, right? And I was like, my like little hub was starting a business because I was like, of everything I'm not good at, this is the one thing I want to get good at. Just, yep. And I don't want to, I don't want you to say like, yeah, the founders I work with, they're insecure as fuck. But like, do do they maybe have that? Have you seen that? Absolutely, and and that's the part of the self awareness part. Um, a lot of founders know that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they're still working out themselves. So there's definitely a high level of insecurity. But again, when you're trying anything this new, you're trying to like change your world like this, you got to be a little bit insecure because it's never been done before. So if you're, if, so if I meet a founder that's like, for example, working on the endometriosis solution, who's 1000% certain, I'd be concerned. Like, you know, who's like, oh yeah, no problems will ever occur. I'll, we'll crush it day in, day out. That, those people I'll be worried about. I mean, kind of like the third in this girl. She's like, oh, yeah, this blood thing, best thing ever. Don't worry about it. Best thing it. ever. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so anytime anytime someone says just, I got it, is usually my trigger to go like, I'm going to go check this now. Oh, 
Uh, by the way, context for everybody who's listening, this is the second podcast I'm recording with Nev because the first one just went horrible audio, horrible video. So now we're back. But you told one story that ingrained in me, and it was the guy that went up to you, and he told you he wanted to shift in uh, the role he had in the company. So I'd love to tell that story for the audience. Yeah, so this is one of those really great examples of self-aware self founders. So he was running a company. He founded it. It was it was a it was a really great company. He was a really good CEO. But one day, and we've just invested in like we're probably one year into the investment, and then he taps me and he says, "I'm gonna talk to you about something, and I I want you to hear me out before, you know, before you just like shoot me down and yell at me." I'm like, "All right, cool." So this is where I start getting worried. Where are you gonna ask me for more money, or is the project dead? Like, is, he comes up to me and he says, "I think." I don't think I'm the right person to run this company going forward. Like I know where my skills are. I know I'm good at sales, but I feel like the next step requires an exceptionally more professional CEO. And I'd like to spearhead that process so that we can get a great outcome and get a great CEO. And to me, that was a incredible you know, team first attitude that, you know, sometimes you hear like, oh, no one does that. This, this is real. Um, you know, this, this person's like near and dear to my heart. We chat all the time now, you know, and, and, and he's, he's truly been an inspiration for me in sense of how I look, look at founders, super self-aware, always team first, like always team first. This man has, you know, sometimes when the company couldn't afford, like, you know, to do due diligence way back when, like, you know, like we needed to do a report, like a deep dive consultancy report. And the found, the found, uh, the, the cash was like, oh, it's a bit tight. He'll put up his own money. Not, not that he has a lot, but it's like, you know, we need to get this done and the team comes first. So we'll do that. So he's that guy. That guy's a G. I like it. I love AC's that story a G. because. Yeah, man. No, yeah. it's, it's, and, and again, like it, now imagine if he comes back to me and says like, Hey man, I got this idea. You know, I need funding. Come on, man. I'd move heaven and earth to get him that funding. You know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. Um, it, like, I want to tie it back a little bit to Twitter. When I, um, sure. to me, it was kind of painful in the beginning of Tweet Hunter because, like, I had to accept unwillingly that I wasn't going to be CEO. You know, everybody wants to be a CEO, right? It's the cool one, it's the one you can put everywhere. everywhere. I was on the CMO, so I was like, ah, oh, fuck. But um, at some point it's like, do you want to play cool or do you want to build a big company? You know? Um, 100%. So a little bit back to Twitter, man. Uh, there was one video that was kind of hurt, hurtful. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck, from Alex. Uh, and we want to talk about this. But uh, he basically sure. says, starting a software company is a terrible fucking idea. Obviously it's not a bad idea. Just starting a software company, there's nuance to it. but he essentially talked about how if you have this course and you're an influencer and you feel like people are just going to buy because of your course, because it's an essential part of completing it, your stuff is not going anywhere because you're competing against tech people and tech people do this all day. And when I mentioned that to you, you said, I have a few thoughts on that that I'd like to share. And I was like, don't say them before we start recording, but uh, we're recording now. So do you want to, do you want to riff on that? No, absolutely. So, so essentially the context of the video that Alex wrote was essentially if you're a guru, in a guru space, providing a service and e-learning space, providing education, you shouldn't distract yourself by building a SaaS, you know, that either 
you know, feeds from your e-learning solution into that SaaS that is likely to be suboptimal. And again, I, I agree to that you know, to some extent, because it's, you're right. If you're learning e-learning business and let's just say, for example, right, you're running a sales program, like you teach people how to sell stuff. And now you're going to buy, you're going to build a lead management software, right? That doesn't make sense to me because the Salesforce and there's 50 different versions of that, of that solution you're trying to provide. So that makes zero sense to do, right? But in, if, if, if I were in your position, that's a little bit different because Tweet Hunter is a very nuanced piece of equipment that actually facilitates very specific thing, you know, that it does. And to be honest, that, that, and that's the other important thing to, to recognize. The market in which you're playing in isn't particularly like mature. Like for example, if, if some guy did the sales call and they're going up against freaking Salesforce, that's a different behemoth entirely. Like that's that's a different animal. Whereas what you're doing, you're going into a very specific market that's still trying to figure itself out. And the one thing that a lot of other solutions don't have that Tweet Hunter has is the the things like the AI engine and how it's designed and used is used by someone who's actively, you know, prolific on Twitter, which is you. Like you, you just like you know, like this. I'm yet to meet someone who's on Twitter doesn't know who damn Jacob Molina is. Like like let's let's be honest. Like I've yet to meet that person, right? So so I'm just saying like when you when the software is going through your lens, it's likely you know it's going to satisfy a lot more people's requirements because if it satisfies yours, there's a good chance it's going to satisfy mine. Right. So it's a different. So, so I think the comment Alex made is in general kind of makes sense, but you know, there's a lot of nuance to a lot of things and just to add more spice to this. And I, you know, I really thought, I really thought about this a lot. Sure. Oh, let's go. Like, do you, do you know who Russell Brunson is? Oh, I love that guy. Yeah. Russell Brunson freaking made click funnels. Right, he made a SaaS. He's a guru, and he made a SaaS software. And guess what? The re what revenue was recorded for twenty twenty two for his SaaS software? It's like over a hundred mil, isn't it? Hundred and sixty mil. Yeah, it's crazy. So again, to 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 again, like all things, there's exceptions to the rule. And I think the the takeaway from what Alex says for people who need to understand is, don't build something just for the sake of building it, because there's no you know if if it's if it's if there's something out there that's better, as your responsibility as someone providing e-course is to point them to that solution. But if there's nothing out there, go build the thing and do it well. Like do it really, really well, right? Do it really, really well. Because again, there's a problem in the market that no one's solving for that you have a very, very intimate knowledge of, you know, solving for it. Go So go do that. Don't, you know. Yeah. So anyway, that's my piece on, you know, hopefully I don't catch too much hate for it. <laughs> No, that's gonna be sick. I, I, I'm gonna do that, and it's going, it's gonna, it's gonna go great. And, and Alex, Alex you, you gonna DM me? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, if Alex DM me, I wouldn't be mad. You know, I'm just. Saying. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Send but, me uh, one of those flannels, bro. Yeah, yeah. For well, I need like like seventy more pounds of muscle, but uh, give give me give me a decade. I'll, I'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, so you, you, you build this great network. You already have this huge thing off Twitter. Why are you on Twitter? And this is not like, I, I just genuinely want to know what's the move with Twitter for you. At the moment, it's the main one is getting access to deals. 
and and getting to work with some really interesting companies like that's really the bag for me with twitter you know it just opens a it just gives me access to a broader universe of just talent and people and i just loved i just love that idea you know like i just love the idea of having access to people in the valley where i could take some you know upstart startup from australia and then essentially go like hang on this would make a lot of sense in the valley why are we trying to fundraise in australia why not just go straight you know so things like that like the, the, to me you can never it can never suck having a big broad network and twitter the other thing about twitter is it forces me to synthesize my thoughts to a succinct consumable kind of piece like it forces me forces me to like make what is generally a little bit more complex to sim- simple chunkable digestible and executable terms so yeah that's that's what the best thing i've gotten from twitter forcing me to do that that's that's cool because you essentially said like it makes me better makes me more money but in such an elegant way and i like it (laughs) (laughs) well uh i i enrolled this other startup person in twitch and clients the other day and um let me know if this has been your experience, but she said, I've worked with a lot of people from, from the Bay Area uh, that have huge followings on Twitter. And she tells me, dude, they all suck at their job. I'm like, whoa, what do you mean? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, so likes and confidence either, right? Apparently. So is your move kind of going towards get kind of the network from the big accounts that will allow you to get kind of the access to the deal from, from the anonymous guy with two followers that's worth a billion? Yep. So, so again, right? Like you, you want to, you want to be able to demonstrate competence succinctly in, in your tweets. And to be honest, if you're in the space, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference when someone's literally writing it off some kind of blog and ripping it off or someone's actually done the work. And I hope mine at least sounds closer to the done the work than the guy ripping off the blog. But that's what you want to signal to people like, hey, I've seen this and done this before. I've seen this volume of work before. Let's have a chat. Because again, that's the start, right? You, you, you know, you can't close anyone on Twitter. Well, at least I'm not, I'm not that good. But I want to be able to, you know, highlight that, hey, I've done some things. You know, let's maybe j- jump on a call and see if we can help each other. Because I'm, again, I like, like you and we've had this conversation. I'm not for everybody. Like, I'm not. Like, j- like the same way John Danaher isn't for everybody, I'm definitely not. For everybody, and and this is by no way saying that I'm anywhere close to John Danaher. FYI, if John if John ever sees this, he might. You never know. I hope so, dude. I um I trained with Danaher for like a month and um for like a month, right? And I did one move, like for out of the hundreds of moves that you have to do in training, I did one move. And John doesn't even know my name. John probably can't recognize me. But when he told me on the match, he said, he said once, good job, sir. I was like, oh, my God. This is all I did in my life. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Dude, that uh, is open question whether that's more valuable than a black belt. I'm not going to lie. It, it, it could be. <laughs> like having John Danner come with you to good work, sir. I'm like, oof, that's it. I'm done. There's no higher high than this. Yeah. This is me winning the 80s. This is, this is... Take off your belt. Hang it. <laughs> that's that's, it. that's it. it. Like, this is, this is me winning the ADCC. Thank you very much. Yeah, there you go. Love it, man. Uh, we are kind of coming close to the hour, but um, before we even hop off, I just want to tell you, man, this is an awesome, awesome podcast. I had a lot of fun talking to you. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about where can people find you and why should people find you? Perfect. Oh, first of all, thanks for having me, man. Again, it was a blast. It's always a blast when we chat, but thanks so much, man. It's been great. So where can people find me? Mainly on Twitter. Um, so it's it's NivT on Twitter and integralinsights.io, which is the fund I run. So why you should follow me. So if you have a business that you're even considering bringing to investors or potentially exiting, come talk to us. We'll make sure that you're making all the right steps. And at the very least, you're going to get a whole bunch of certainty before you make such a next, your next big move. So do that. And just want to shout out a couple of other things. Um, one, we'll be running a kind of like accelerator stretch retreat program sometime next year. Where we're going to bring some of our founders and potentially bringing some members of the public into the into the retreat and also some investors. So that's going to be pretty, pretty exciting, an exciting time. You know, everybody goes away for a couple, like, you know, four or five days and essentially just riff off each other. That's always magical. And then, um, do you, um, so my partner, Julia and I are also launching like a pitch training session where we essentially help founders who are especially on the lower end of the scale where they're newer, learn how to pitch, build their pitch and structure their deals, you know, with, with more sophistication so that by the time they go to VC, you know, they're looking like sharper. So yeah, so a couple of really interesting things coming into the pipeline. So we're really excited about all those things. Dude, I love that. After this interview, on your retreat, everybody's go, going to go on a shorts and a, and a t-shirt. Like a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they can play, play low key. You know, it's like, that's how you know, Nim, I'm listening to your advice. There you go. All right. Hey, no, <laughs> I, I, again, it's, 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 <laughs> that's awesome, buddy. <laughs> That'd be yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for being here. This is a great podcast and, uh, yeah, I'll see you then.